Good morning, everybody. You remember last Sunday, Peter talked about the Great Commission. And probably one of the one of the um, I guess shocking aspects about that. Peter says a lot of shocking things, but but the most um, almost I want to say curious, curious, sad maybe uh, was was how few believers actually understand the Great Commission. And um, I'm wanting to expand on that um, as, as has been noted a number of times recently, not least when Peter was sort of um, looking for assistance with letterboxing in the local community and thank you for that wonderful response um, this year we are trying to turn our attention perhaps with a greater emphasis than in the past to the task of evangelism which is, which is as as a community of faith. I mean, ultimately, that would have to be one of the pillars, one of the one of the key rationales for our existence as a community of people. And um, so, I'd like to build on and extend somewhat on uh, Peter's lesson related to the Great Commission. And I'd like to read to you, and I'm sure this will be familiar to everybody. If you didn't recognise Matthew's account, you will recognise Mark's account. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I want to focus your attention upon that phrase, the good news. Go into all the world and preach the good news. And those among you that are Bible scholars will recognise that good news there is actually gospel, the gospel. Um, And that's going to be the focus of our attention this morning. What is the gospel? And why is it good news? I mean, we've got some um, definitions there, if you will, the Angelion, uh, which translated literally means good news. And we'll recognise, of course, where words like in English, like evangelism and evangelist come from. Evangelizo, uh, to proclaim the good news. Evangelistes, one who proclaims the good news. But you'll recognise, as is often the case, a de- defining a term doesn't really shed that much light upon it. We might still ask, well, what is, this, what is the good news? And, and why is it good news? Why isn't it just news? And they're, they're the themes that we're going to explore, uh, engage with this morning. I'd like to begin, and this is borrowed from um, a fellow named N.T. Wright, Imagine you are sitting in a cafe with friends when a woman that none of you know rushes in off the street. Good news, she shouts. You'll never guess it's the greatest news ever. You got that picture in your mind? Can you imagine? It may not have happened to you, but can you imagine that happening? What is this person talking about? And why do they think it's okay to barge into the cafe and disturb the peace of perfect strangers? And that, 
I think today more than ever is, is an important question because in our society today, we are conditioned to keep things to ourselves. But the good news that we're talking about this morning is too good, too important to keep to ourselves. This is news, good news to be shared. Perhaps she's just learned from her doctor that a cure had been discovered for the terminal illness that her son has been battling for years and she simply cannot contain her excitement. That would explain her birth, her, her behaviour. Or perhaps she's just learned that the Australian cricket team had humiliated the Poms by winning the Ashes Test and she assumed we would share her patriotic enthusiasm for getting one up on the mother country. Maybe in a region with high unemployment and poverty, she's just learned that a new industry is starting up in the area next year and promising to create jobs and bring prosperity, giving hope to the entire struggling community. Any one of those scenarios could serve as an explanation for this woman's behaviour. What makes news good news? The news in each of these scenarios didn't just come out of the blue. Each case assumes a larger context as if it were a significant and new and often unexpected development within a much larger story. Do you see that reflected in all of those scenarios? Uh, the, the scenario of the mother and her son assumes a family's long struggle with sickness and anxiety. You imagine if the, if the boy was a young teenager. For years, that family has struggled with the worry, the fear, the burden, or perhaps coming with great financial costs clinging on to the hope that one day a cure might be found for their son. And here it is. You could hardly blame her for not containing her excitement and wanting to share it with people, whether they wanted to know it or not. But there's the back story, you'll notice, that whole history for that family. The cricket scenario assumes the long-standing rivalry between colonial Australia and England. But one of my friends is an English gentleman who views the news as scandalous and wants to dismiss it as fake news. This couldn't possibly be true. Another friend, an American, knows nothing and cares even less about cricket or the cultural rivalry, so she dismisses it as an irrelevant matter of provincial nonsense. Who cares? Who cares? For those of you that are Bible students, that might ring a few bells. When, when the Apostle Paul described the response of the Jews and the Gentiles to the preaching of the cross, we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. As important as the message is, as earth-shattering as the good news is, there will always be those that want to dismiss it as a scandal, 
Fake news, I don't want to know about it, shut up! Or those that want to sneer and say, that's just foolishness. Shut up. This is something that we need to be aware of. Because if I'm successful in reminding you, if not persuading you by the end of this morning, that the good news is worth sharing, be prepared for opposition, be prepared for people to respond as if it's a scandal and if it's absolute foolishness. That's reality. I'd like to explain a little bit about this word gospel in its context in the first century. Gospel in a Roman world. When Paul's audience, for example, hears him in writing to the church at Rome, for example, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. When he uses that language, this is what, whether you were Jew or Gentile, in that place, and time. This is what you heard. This is the, for, for our Thursday night Christ and culture group, this is the filter, the cultural filter through which that word passed and this is what comes out at the end. Listen to Paul's language as he writes to the church in Corinth. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Now, that image of a triumphal procession has a historical context and you'll notice in the, the, um, the, the picture there, the line drawing, an ink drawing, this is what comes to mind in that time and that place. There's been a great victory. One of the Caesars, perhaps. You might think of Julius, or we'll focus in a moment on the, on the lived experience as, a, as the prime example, Octavian. And the great victorious general returns to the adoration of the people, returns to Rome. And you'll notice here in this, in this picture how all of the soldiers are lined up as the, as the, the general comes through the Ark of Triumph, a monument that's been built specifically to celebrate his victory. And the troops, the army lined up to cheer on as the victorious general arrives home to claim the victory and claim the praise that is his. And then the people, grateful because of the victory, because of the security, the safety now that this wonderful all-conquering general has secured for them. And though not included in this picture, you can guarantee that at the end of the line behind the general and the parade are the prisoners of war, the spoils of war, trailing along 
in chains following. That's the image. That's gospel. That's the herald's message of declaring the great news that Caesar, whoever, has been successful. And Paul and the other early Christians had the audacity to pick up that language which in that time and place belonged exclusively to the Caesars and their mighty generals, Rome. They had the audacity to pick up that image and apply it to a Jew living in the backwaters of the empire. And what was his claim to fame? He died on a cross. You've got to be kidding. To the Jew, a scandal. To the Greek, to the Roman, a joke. It's interesting. Don't know how you are on your history. I'm going to give you a little bit. I hope not too much. I hope not to overload you. But this is important background. Gaius Octavian, I think the nephew of Julius Caesar, we know him better off as, as, as Augustus, who was the, the Caesar reigning, the, technically the first Caesar of Rome. The Caesar that was reigning at the time of the incarnation, when Jesus was born. And in 31 BC, there was tension and there was a showdown to see and settle once and for all who's going to be top dog in Rome. So Octavian versus Mark Antony and and we recognise from Hollywood if from nowhere else the the role that Cleopatra played uh, in in supporting Mark Antony. And the decisive battle, a naval battle at Actium off the coast of Greece occurred in 31 BC. Octavian enjoyed a decisive victory and he commences his rule as Emperor of Rome in 27 BC. You know, there was a lag of several years between the battle that won, the decision was made, but then it took several years to consolidate the end result of that before he made his victorious entry into Rome to claim the crown of Caesar. Of real interest to us is this character Herod the Great, not just because he was a king of Judea at the time when Jesus was born, the infamous king, remember who slaughtered the infants in Bethlehem when he perceived that, that the birth of Jesus was a threat to him, his political power, his position, You see, Herod the Great was a good friend of Mark Antony, a loyal friend. In fact, Herod the Great sent his troops in to support Antony and Cleopatra. He committed himself to to his side. So you can begin to imagine how he felt when his side lost And in these days, 
to be on the losing side was not a good place to be. Because usually one of the first things that the winning side would do is go in and wipe out the enemy to eliminate the threat. And here is the genius. Sneakiness, maybe. The political savvy of Herod the Great. He knew what was coming. And so he took the initiative to approach Augustus. Who you could just imagine when Augustus saw Herod, he saw the enemy. And he threw himself at the mercy of Augustus. And he said words to this effect. When you look at me, don't see a former enemy. See one who was loyal and who was now willing to put that loyalty into your service. Genius. Genius. And Augustus praised him and saw that this is a man who's going to be a real asset to me. The decision that he made in response to the good news, the gospel, that Augustus was triumphant. Again, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. You imagine Caesar's victorious return to Rome on his way to offer up sacrifice to thank the gods and secure his rule at the centre of power. Paul is using that image to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through us, Paul speaking himself, I guess in the immediate context of of the apostles, himself and the other apostles, but by extension all of the church, all of the body of Christ, through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ. You see the connotation of sacrifice, incense being offered there. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. In the proclamation of the gospel, Some will hear it and receive it and experience it as life. Others will hear it and dismiss it, recoil from it in disgust as the stench of death. That's the paradox, that's the reality when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. I want to come back to the woman in the cafe. And let's say for argument's sake that she was the mayor that's described in this news article. Now, I understand that things um, have become a bit challenging in the last couple of years for Gupta and and his crew, and I don't know what the outcome has been. There there was some financial trouble. Um, But uh, leaving that aside, this dates back to, I think it was 2018, 2019. British billionaire 
industrialist Sanjeev Gupta has announced plans to build the largest steel plant in the developed world in South Australia. Liberty Primary Steel, part of Gupta's GFG alliance, today announced major steps towards the transformation of the alliance's Wyala Steelworks, signing contracts worth more than 600 million Australian dollars. Wyala Mayor Claire McLaughlin said the projects would be funded in partnership with the relevant investors and stakeholders while the council would seek to support from the state and federal governments to ensure, and notice what I've highlighted in the red text here, this is highlighting the impact that this news is having upon this community. The whole of Wyala was brought along for the ride. The whole of the community is going to benefit from this. We are Wyala is a catch cry that you'll see more and more over the coming months as we engage every section of our community, as we communicate to every last member of our city our bold, world-reaching plans, Mayor McLaughlin said. It won't happen overnight, but as sure as the next day will come, the amazing story of Wyala will unfold. Do you see the connection there with the victory, the gospel of Augustus? He won the victory at Actium. And from that point forward, the heralds went forth declaring the gospel, the very good news. The world's going to change for the better because of this victory. Now again, it was three or four years later before Caesar actually takes up the mantle of emperor. But when the battle was won, that's when the message is declared, when the heralds go forth. The gospel of Augustus. The gospel of Sanjeev Gupta (laughs) doesn't mean necessarily much to us, but if you lived in Wyala, the steel town in South Australia the headquarters of steel manufacture in, in South Australia, who'd fallen upon hard times. Here was the news that everything's going to change for the better. Who could blame the mayor for getting excited about it? This is the nature of good news. Citing N.T. Wright again, this good news this is good news when it is a new and exciting development within a much larger story it's about something that has happened and because of this happening everything will now be different it's a game changer good news introduces an intermediate period of waiting this idea of now but not yet now but not yet fully consummated So, back to the question, what makes news good news? Well, when it is a significant new development within a much larger story that changes everything for the better. Recognise that when I remind you of Paul's words again to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen carefully to Paul's words. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news, that's of the gospel, 
that I proclaim to you which you in turn received in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Think about what Paul claims there. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I proclaimed, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel which saves you. Well, here's the answer to our first question. What exactly is the gospel? It's good news. Yes, we know. But what's the content of the good news? I handed on to you of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The good news, the gospel, is an event. It is an event It is something that has occurred in our history. I remember many years ago in Tasmania, a brother, Greg Wells, in leading our thoughts around the Lord's table, said something to the effect that, 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 why, why am I here? Why are we here? Why are we pausing now to, to honour the death, burial and resurrection of Christ in sharing in communion together? The answer came back so simple but so profound because it's true. Because it's true. God entered into our time-space dimension in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, incarnation, to live among us to show us what it is to live fully out of the image of God, to suffer and to die on the cross and to be raised on the third day. There's the gospel. The events surrounding the incarnation. Of first importance, I think what Paul's saying is, if, if, you know, the, 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 the focal point is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the game changer. And you'll notice this other phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with, there's the back story. This is good news. It's not just, you know, good news that well, well, I think some get confused in their mind. The good news is the Bible, the Word of God. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's good, but it's not the good news. It's not the gospel. The good news is, oh, that Jesus loves us. Well, that's 
good news, I guess, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is an event in history. The incarnation. And it didn't just occur in a vacuum. It was the fulfilment of, can I say, sacred history. If we think of the Old Testament scriptures and the story of history that the scriptures convey, we might summarise it this way. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. And so when we arrive at the first century, and this message goes right back to the beginning, right back to creation, we arrive at the first century The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. This, this is who we've been waiting for. Messiah, Jesus the Christ. There's your breaking news. There's your Gospel. Jesus has come. Messiah has come. And as a result of that, the continuation of the people of God, because he came, We go forward, obviously, but it is anchored in, it points back to that life that was lived, the death that was experienced, the resurrection that occurred. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. A lot flows from the gospel, but that lot shouldn't be confused with the gospel itself. The Gospels, you'll notice, thinking of of the the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, are the pivotal hinge that hold the two together. It's the epilogue of the Old Testament. It's like the, 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 the last chapter, if you will, that answers the question, someone's coming, someone's coming. But at the same time, it's the prologue, it's like the introduction to the New Testament, this is, this is the one and therefore this is what flows. The establishment of the church, the expansion of the kingdom of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where it all begins. According to the scriptures is not just about proof texts. Sure, there are proof texts if you will. But we remember that when Herod was threatened at the news of, of the birth of the Messiah, remember he called together some academics and said, what do the scriptures say about, about the birthplace of the Messiah? And they say, well, Micah says it was going to be in Bethlehem. And all that's true and all of that is profound, mind-boggling. But it's not the primary point. The primary point is that the whole sweep of history pointed towards this moment, this life, this action and intervention, if you will, from God. The good news is an event, an event to proclaim. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Shout the truth. God came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He lived among us. He defeated sin. 
And on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, he defeated even death. That's the good news. That's the good news. You'll notice that a lot flows from that. The gospel impacts and changes everything. Nothing will ever be the same. So we're left with the question, how should we then live in light of these events? That's when you come to a concern about what does the Bible teach about um, the church and how I should live in a God-honouring way. But all of that comes back and depends upon the gospel, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, an event. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's statement and I want to tweak it a little bit to suit my purposes. I've cited it here as as it's stated by Lewis. I believe in the gospel. I believe in the death, burial and resurrection of Christ as a historical fact. As I believe that the sun has risen, Nathan's kids' time talk, I know just as surely as I can see the sun rise, I can accept what many have argued is is the historic, in terms of history, the most clearly, unambiguously established historical event. If you have a heart and a mind that's open to the truth. I believe it. I know it. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. By the gospel I see everything else. The gospel, the historical event, affects and changes everything. Everything. The note, beware of confounding the two, that is trying to say that the good news is actually just good advice. Um, Galatians, I think, pretty forcefully addresses that concern that apparently became an issue in some of the churches in Galatia, where it seems that they were saying, really what counts, what the gospel is, is that uh, we need to keep the law of Moses and, and, then, and then God has added Jesus to that. That's the gospel. And Paul said no. In fact, Paul explicitly says that's not the gospel at all. That's a false gospel. It's to confuse apples and oranges. The gospel is an event. Don't confuse the event with the good advice that flows out of that event. Philippians chapter 2. Well known, I'm sure, to all of us. Listen carefully to Paul's words. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave us much more than a noble example to follow or a philosophical or ethical standard full of good advice to live by. He gave us all of those things, absolutely. But he gave us much more than that. The incarnation is the event that changes everything, quite literally the climax of history. The king has won the victory over sin and death and is now consolidating his rule, which will be fully consummated when he returns. Do we understand that? We live in that interim period now. The victory has been won. The victory was accomplished through the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Just as victory was won for Octavian when he decisively won that battle at Actium. But the rule was not fully established, fully consummated until several years later when he arrived triumphantly in Rome to claim that throne. So Jesus reigns now, absolutely. But that reign, how do the scholars put it? Now but not yet. Not yet fully realised. Not yet fully accomplished. But we have the promise that that will happen when Jesus returns. Now is the time to decide where your loyalty lies. You remember Herod? He recognised that dilemma. He recognised the high stakes. And though he had been committed in one direction, he recognised now I need to seek the mercy of Augustus. And so it is for us, we live devoted to ourselves or some other cause but when confronted with the gospel we have that same choice that Herod had am I going to throw myself at the mercy of God not out of fear out of gratitude because he loved me and gave himself for me